voters really need to think through who is most likely to bring in a government um, that will really make progress on these big problems for Australia. Uh, because if we do make progress, that will improve our lives in the long run. And government is an enormous force for good if it is well run. Uh, and that's why we have elections. Welcome to the Grattan Podcast channel. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today we're discussing the priorities for the next Commonwealth Government. Australians will go to the polls on 18 May to determine who will be our next Commonwealth Government. A federal election is an opportunity to take stock of how Australia is doing, where it's going and what governments can do about it. Drawing on 10 years of Grattan research and reports, Grattan has produced a new Commonwealth Orange book which rates Australia's performance against similar countries. And while there are some good news stories, there are also policy reforms which should be made to our schools and universities, hospitals and housing, roads, railways, cities and regions, budgets, taxes, retirement incomes, and of course, climate change. We'll speak with each program director from Grattan throughout this podcast on the specific details of their areas of policy reform. But joining me now to talk through the overall findings from the Orange Book and some of the key areas for reform is Grattan CEO John Daly and fellow Brendan Coates. Welcome, John. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. John, the role of government is oft discussed. The Orange Book lays out a number of considerations for the next Commonwealth government to deliver a term of enlightened public policy, as it were. What are some of the most important ones? So there's a range of things that Australian governments need to do, and they need to do this against the context of where we are. So if we look at where we are to start with, um, we like to think of Australia as a country that's doing really well, that we wouldn't swap with anyone else. But when you look at the scorecard that we've constructed, looking at, you know, frankly, not comparing Australia with Mexico, but comparing Australia with the Netherlands, uh, with New Zealand, with Canada, with places that, you know, frankly, are our peers mm. uh, and have been for a while, we are not doing so well. Uh, we're doing badly on energy. We're not doing particularly well on, well on schooling. Um, we are not doing particularly well uh, on uh, a whole range of areas where... You know, there's room to improve. And when you look at the history, and that's one of the things that we do very briefly in the Orange Book, the history is one where it really is true that there were a lot of reforms under the Hawke-Keating government. Mm. It really is true that there was quite a lot of reform under the Howard government. And it really is true that there hasn't been a lot since. And a lot of what has been done uh, over the last 12 years, uh, so that's the Gillard, sorry, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison governments <laughs> in succession, and partly, I suspect, as a, result, you know, a consequence of those successions, um, a lot of what has been put in place has then been rolled back. Mm. Uh, and so when you look at the history of reform over the last 12 years, it's not a very impressive record. And public policy from year to year, in a sense, doesn't matter. If mm. the reform does happens next year, not this year, that's not a big deal. But if you simply have well over a decade of policy drift, that starts to catch up with you, and that's where we now are. Mm. And so the kinds of things that we think would would make a real difference, and one of the other things that we've done in the Orange Book is to really prioritise and to say what's big and uh, is, is going to require a bit of energy, but you ought to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. What's maybe small but is not that hard, that's an easy win, you should get on and do that. Mm. 
what's big, but you know, it's going to be really hard. We don't quite know what to do. And there, you know, that's the sort of thing you should send for review and get it done early in your term of government so that you're ready to work, you know, implement the answers towards the end. Uh, and then what's maybe not so important, but nevertheless matters in the overall scheme of things that you can leave to your ministers, you can leave to the states, um, uh, and hopefully it will happen. And within an individual minister's portfolio, they might well prioritise it. But as as the head of whatever, whoever wins after the election, that's perhaps not where you spend your energy as the prime minister. Mm. So the kinds of things that will make a really big difference are a group of tax changes around capital gains tax, negative gearing, um, uh, taxing earnings in retirement um, for uh, in super of superannuation, um, where at the moment, of course, uh, if you're retired, you pay zero tax on your earnings from your superannuation fund. Um, a series of changes to improve processes around the selection of transport pro- uh, projects, which is in many ways a really easy thing to do, mm. although, of course, it would mean that politicians had far less scope for pork barrelling, which is no doubt why they're not so keen on it. Um, <laughs> Uh, of course, really high priority changes around energy. We've just let that area drift for a long time. Uh, so we do need to do something that actually um, puts a constraint on emissions and that actually sees them going down each year rather than up, which is what's happening at the moment. Um, and we really do need to do something about reliability and the way that the combination of more renewables and the way that the electricity market works are brought together mm. so that um, we can ensure that we continue to have reliable electricity in future. Uh, we need to move towards a universal dental care system because that's the big missing piece of Australia's health system. And you know, the reality is that diseases of the mouth are no different from diseases of arms and legs and anywhere else on your body. Absolutely. Uh, but nevertheless, we treat them completely differently in terms of how we support them. If you are um, relatively low income, uh, we pay for you to go to the doctor. We pay for tests to be done. We pay for um, you to take drugs. Uh, we pay for you to go to hospital. But by and large, we do not effectively pay for you to go to the dentist. Mm. Uh, and that's a real hole in the system. Um, we need to restore the demand-driven higher education system. That's a very big deal. Um, we've had that for a decade. It's one of the few reforms that has happened in the last decade. It's also one of the ones that's been wound back. Mm. Uh, and there's no question that it had a big impact in terms of getting the Australian labour market to the point where the graduates were coming out in the disciplines where there was the most demand. So we used to have a whole series of areas in the labour market where there were clearly not enough graduates relative to demand. And most of those uh, um, so-called um, low, uh, high demand um, areas in the economy have disappeared because essentially the universities have caught up under the demand-driven system. And then big issues in the retirement income system. Um, we've got uh, big choices to make about how we choose a default account for people who don't actively choose a super account. Um, at the moment, they more or less get they get put into something that is agreed between their employer or their union or whatever. Mm. Some of those funds are good. Some of them are frankly terrible. Uh, and we need a much better system. And, and the best in show system that the Productivity Commission has been talking about is, we think, a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would make a big difference over the long run, uh, both to people's retirement incomes and to the economy of the country. Uh, we need to look at the age pension assets test. Um, uh, more than half of the cost of the age pension goes to people who've got more than $500,000 in assets. I can understand why younger Australians are struggling to understand why that's a good system. Uh, and we do need to look at the retirement income system more generally and ask mm. what's its purpose um, and is there really any need for the super guarantee to go from 95 to 12% because that'll have a very big impact on wages. And if most of it is going to go in such a way that it's not going to materially 
increase the retirement incomes of a lot of people. And when it does, they're going to be in a situation where they're going to be living a standard of living higher than they had before they retired anyway. Mm. Doesn't seem like a great idea. And then finally, a group of integrity reforms. Um, So uh, again, we like to think of Australia as a really clean country where there's no corruption and, and, you know, we're kind of much better than the Joneses. (laughs) And when you look at the international rankings, the impression you get is we have been quietly slipping for quite some time. Mm. Uh, and it's not the only thing that's driving falling trust in government, but it's certainly not helping. Mm. And there are some very basic things that we could do that lots of other countries around the world have done, that indeed most of the Australian states have done, but the federal government has not in terms of um, uh, capping the amount that you can spend on campaigns, in terms of much better disclosure of political donations, in terms of much more exposure of lobbying activity so we can at least see what's going on, um, publishing ministerial diaries and so on. All of those kinds of things, they're not going to completely solve the problem, but they would at least help. Their cost is minimal uh, and uh, they would go at least some way Mm. to restoring trust in Australian government and they would almost certainly, over the long run, lead to better decisions because they would lead to more decisions in the public interest rather than uh, serving special interests. We'll drill down into the details of, of all of those priority reforms you've just you've just brought up, John. But Brendan, um, John mentioned comparing us against um, other international countries. Can you talk to us how you went about creating the international scorecard? Sure, Megan. So the international scorecard is essentially comparing Australia to about 10 other countries mm-hmm. that we sort of see as being the countries we can probably learn the most from. They're all overwhelmingly wealthy countries like Australia. They have a combination of, some, in some cases, very similar institutional arrangements to us, such as Canada, which is a federation. Um, they're often similar sizes to us. And in some cases, they have actually quite similar institutional arrangements around things like how much they intervene in the economy. So, you know, Australia is a relatively liberal market economy, uh, even though we have relatively strong um, social safety nets through, through government. And what these countries show, I think, really is this is the countries we should be comparing ourselves to and aiming for. And as John mentioned, you know, we're doing okay, you know, compared to a lot of countries in the world. But when you compare us to the list of countries that really are our peers, that we're really trying to succeed against... Um, or learn from, we've got still a lot to learn. So, for example, on economic development, Australia is a relatively rich country, but we used to be a real laggard. And then we went through the, the period of the 1980s and early 1990s, where we had a lot of reforms to sort of bring Australia up to the kind of policies that other countries had started to implement. You know, we brought down tariff bar- barriers, we floated the dollar, we created an independent central bank, and now our incomes per capita are pretty good, but they're nowhere near the highest in the world. So countries like the United States are certainly wealthier than us. Um, On things like housing, Australia does really lag behind still. So, you know, for a country that's so large and has so much land, we actually have relatively scarce amounts of housing per person compared to a lot of other countries. And that's manifesting itself in the fact that housing is more expensive in Australia compared to a lot of other countries. So our median housing costs for the median income earner are much higher than most other countries in the OECD. I think we rank seventh out of the 36 countries in the OECD. Mm. And we're near, we're near the top of this, this subset of this, this list that we really care about, which where, you know, that's not surprising because housing costs are typically higher in countries that are wealthier, 
but it does show there's real problems. On energy, you know, we've had a decade of policy failure and that's starting to really manifest in higher prices, real problems around emissions and making our emissions um, transition much harder than it otherwise needed to be. Health, we do pretty well. So life expectancy at birth is pretty high in Australia compared to most other countries, including the cohort that we're talking about. Mm. And the cohort here is Canada, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, South Korea, Sweden, the United Kingdom and the United States. So a mix of countries of different sizes in different parts of the world, all of which are something to offer Australia. On retirement incomes, we're doing pretty well. Our retirement income, adequacy of retirement incomes is actually quite good. So Australians can expect to have a retirement income much higher than what they had, um, a, a standard of living that's as high as what they had while they were working. And the budgetary costs of the system are quite low because we have a means-tested age pension. So we target the system much more than in other countries. But our costs in terms of superannuation fees, what we're paying to manage our money is much higher. Mm. And then on budget policy, I think really... It's emblematic of the drift that's occurred in the last decade. So Australia, you know, has moved from a position where we had zero net debt uh, in the in the Howard years. We then had the global financial crisis. We quite rightly responded with fiscal stimulus. That obviously puts you into deficit, builds up some debt. But then since then, we haven't done enough to sort of fix the long-term budget challenges that Australia faces. Mm. And so debt to GDP has been rising. and We're no longer in a better fiscal position than some of our peers if the next recession comes along. John, you mentioned the four buckets of reform for prioritising for prioritising reform. Um, the, the Orange Book sets out a framework for setting policy priorities as well as this prioritisation. What are some of the other sort of areas um, that, that the, the next government needs to focus on when setting policy? So the framework we set out is one that, uh, as I indicated earlier, essentially has two dimensions. It's, it firstly asks, well, what's the impact? Uh, and that might be impact in terms of impact on economic growth or because it improves services that um, improve people's lives or because it helps the budget bottom line uh, or because it improves fairness, particularly in terms of supporting those who lack meaningful opportunities uh, or it, it helps other things we care about, such as the environment. Mm. So that's how large is it? How much do we care? You know, mm. And the reality is that some policy reforms will have more impact than others. Uh, and in an ideal world, you want to prioritise the big things rather than sweating the small things. Um, the second axis that we've used is, is summarised as doability. Um, so how hard is it uh, in terms of um, do we have a really clear idea of what will make a difference or do actually you know, smart people who have thought about it deeply disagree with each other, you know, not because they're being paid to disagree with each other, but because um, you know it's a genuinely difficult problem and we really haven't nailed it. Mm. Um, to what extent is it inherently something which is easy to implement? To what extent is it something that's inherently really complicated with lots of different moving pieces that you've got to get all of them right in order to implement it? So, for example, changing a tax rate, that's pretty easy. Implementing a brand new you know, carbon pricing scheme, that's inherently quite a lot harder. Um, although the very fact that we've already done it once uh, makes it easier than it would be otherwise because mm. we've kind of already worked our way through a lot of those implementation problems. Um, to what extent is there entrenched public opposition? Uh, and that's usually higher if the first order impacts are really obvious and unpleasant uh, and the things that you care about are second order and then less obvious. Um, so, for example... Um, you know, changing planning regimes, everybody can see how it means there's going to be more crowding in their neighbourhood. And not so many people think through, but that means that my children might be able to afford to buy a home. Mm. Uh, so we're looking, for, in terms of understanding doability, we're asking, so what's our confidence in this? We've got a solution. Um, how hard is it going to be to implement? 
to what extent is there entrenched public opposition that we're going to have to, um, or a government is going to have to explain what's going on, explain why this is a good idea, get people focused on those second order but often larger consequences, um, and 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 make the case for reform. And so when we're prioritising, we apply those two things, uh, and we say, look. If you're the new prime minister, you want to focus your time and energy on the things that are really big in terms of impact, uh, and you'll go after the things that are relatively more doable. Um, uh, on the other hand, there'll be a bunch of things that are smaller but still doable. Those are easy wins. Take the points, build some momentum for reform. But you know, if all you've got to show for yourself at the end of a term of government is the easy wins and you've done none of the things that were priorities, then by definition, you've only done the small stuff. Mm. Uh, and then you also want to have a think about these things which are really big, but which are much less doable. And that's the stuff that you send for a view. That's the stuff where you get work done. It's where you build the case so that uh, by the time we get to the next election, we can promote those things from the review column to the prioritised column precisely because we have worked through the detail. We have overcome some of the public opposition. Um, uh, we have built more of a consensus about what needs to happen and why that would be a good idea. Um, and that's the way that progress happens in policy terms. Mm. Let, let's get into some of the detail on some of these reform areas. Firstly, economic development. John, you've noted in the Orange Book that Australia is a prosperous country with decades of strong economic growth and high incomes and wealth per capita. But are those trends likely to continue? Well, I think that partly depends on what we decide to do. Yeah. So, so overall, chances are economic growth will continue to happen as it has been happening for a very, very long time. Uh, but what we're really arguing about is, well, exactly how fast will it happen? Because mm. over time, changes in growth rates accumulate, and that makes a big difference. And you can really see that if you look at the history of Australia. Um, you know, a lot of other countries went down in the global financial crisis. We didn't. On the other hand, uh, income per capita in Australia uh, really hasn't moved over the last... Uh, or um, seven or eight years, uh, and it has gone forwards in a whole series of other countries. The United States, it's, in fact, most of these peer countries that we're comparing ourselves to um, have seen higher income per capita over the last couple of years. So there are a bunch of things that we can do. Those are some of the things that I, that I spoke about earlier. We mm. need to look at um, uh, rates of take-home pay for people on middle incomes, um, we need to look at our tax system and improve the efficiency of the tax system and so on. And then, in fact, really kind of all the things we'll be talking about for the rest of this podcast mm -hmm. uh, will all ultimately, a lot of them anyway, will help economic growth. And unfortunately, this is a game of inches where in order to make a big difference, you've just got to do a lot of smaller things right. What about workforce participation? You've noted it's an area we don't rate as well as comparable countries. What needs to change? So the two things that would make a really big difference are looking at how much women get to take home, oh, sorry, second income earners who are overwhelmingly women get to take home after they have paid tax. That's the easy part in a sense. Given up welfare benefits, so the more income earn, you earn, the less family tax benefit you qualify for and a variety of other welfare benefits. Uh, and the more you work, if you've got children in, of childcare age, the more you will need to pay for childcare. And also the more you earn, the less childcare benefit you qualify for. So it's a kind of double whammy. Mm. Um, so uh, we need to work through those combinations that mean that uh, for a lot of second income earners, uh, they are take, if they're already working three days a week and they decide to work four days a week, they're often taking home 
you know, maybe only five cents in the dollar of what mm. they earn. And funnily enough, that's not very attractive. No, um, as a have, woman, I can say that's true. <laughs> indeed. Well, we have lots of we have lots of high income earners, predominantly men, who are saying that, you know, it is a complete disaster that they have to pay 47 cents in the dollar um, on every extra dollar they earn. You know, they should try being um, a second income earner with children where they're effectively paying away 95 cents of every dollar that they earn. That's where the real traps workforce participation are in the Australian tax and welfare system, and that's a really high priority. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is around the age at which you can get access to the age pension and superannuation. We can see from the numbers, there's no question that those formal ages at which you get access to those things do affect people's decisions to retire. So you get really quite noticeable kinks um, with a lot more people retiring at or about those particular ages. Mm. Uh, and of course, we're conducting a gigantic natural experiment at the moment as we change those ages, and I would expect we will see um, workforce participation effectively and decisions to retire effectively change mm. as we are moving those ages. Mm. Um, and so if we move them, we're already in the process of moving them from 65 to 67. If we move them from 67 to 70, we expect we would see materially more older people in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Now, the catch with that, of course, is that there are plenty of people, particularly over the age of 60, who are now at a point that they can't work. And one of the consequences of tightening up the disability pension is that there's quite a lot of over, there's more over 60 year olds than there used to be who are on new start rather than the disability pension, but who clearly um, have some kind of physical impairment. Mm. And it may well be that as part of this, we need to look a lot more carefully at creating a special category for people over the age of 60 who've got some kind of physical um, impairment that makes it difficult for them to work and say that they should be allowed to qualify for a pension. Um, at the same rate as the age pension, rather than simply qualifying for new start, which of course is much, much lower. Mm. Um, but there's no question that there are plenty of people who can work and who choose not to because they reach age pension age. And if we change that age, they'd probably work for longer. That would obviously be good for the economy, it would obviously be good for the budget. Maybe less obviously, although it's obvious when you think about it, it would also be very good for their retirement incomes. There is nothing that increases your retirement income as much as simply working for a few or extra few extra years. Sure. And this is all taking place against the context in the context of an aging population. So there are big budgetary challenges that are coming down the line. Mm. Um, we know that the parliamentary budget office put out some work just before uh, the federal budget was announced that shows that there's a material cost of ageing in terms of reducing tax revenues and raising costs on mm. things like the pension, on healthcare and the like. And so this is one of the trade-offs we have to think about making in order to make sure the system remains sustainable going forward. Mm. Let's stay on the theme of retirement incomes. Um, the Orange Book lays out a number of reform considerations here, but is our current system working? Look up, Megan, on the whole, the system's actually working pretty well. So Australians' retirement incomes, if the purpose of the retirement income system is to do two things, make sure people aren't in poverty and that make sure that people are getting a reasonable standard of living in retirement relative to what they had beforehand. And on the second of those two objectives, it's actually doing pretty well. So a low to middle income earner can expect to pre-retirement income in retirement of about 95% of what they had beforehand. Mm. For the median, so the average person, it's about 89%. And then it goes down amongst higher, higher income earners, but you don't expect them to need to have such a high replacement rate in retirement. The challenge for the system is that there are some groups that are really struggling and overwhelmingly they're renters. So mm. the best predictor of if you're going to struggle in retirement is whether you rent or own your own home. Mm. And as we know, going forward, in some pieces we've put up on both the conversation and on the Grattan blog, um, there is 
there's going to be material change in the number of people that own their own homes in retirement in future. That number is going to fall quite substantially and that's going to generate some big long-term challenges for the system. Mm-hmm. Let's talk through then what does need to change in order to, to bring that retirement income system up to par. Well, the, f- the first thing we should really do is actually have a review um, into the system to understand what its objective is and how well the system is actually measuring up against its objective. Because what we've had over the course, I think, of the last decade or more is quite ad hoc policymaking that, you know, we've pushed up the rate of the compulsory super guarantee. We've tweaked the age pension assets test. Uh, we've done a bunch of other things in the system around superannuation tax breaks that on the whole have been quite good. Um, but we haven't actually stopped to step back and think about what's the system supposed to be achieving it as a whole and therefore how can we do this in a way that generates good retirement incomes at least cost, cost to government and at the least cost to people's wages today. So that's got to really be the priority. And if that review comes to similar conclusions to our own work, it will probably would probably recommend not increasing the compulsory rate of super contributions to 12%, mm-hmm. super guarantee. That's already legislated, and we think that that should probably stop at 9.5% as it is currently because that looks like it's sufficient. Super's doing its job, but you can have too much of a good thing. Um, the priority really otherwise should be boosting the maximum rate of rent assistance by mm. 40% which will cost about $300 million for retirees or $1.2 billion if you did it for everyone. And that would have an enormous impact on on poverty in Australia, particularly mm-hmm. both amongst those that are retired and those that are of working age, particularly, say, for example, those on Newstart today. And then to pay for those reforms, the government should probably include more of the value of the home, the family home in the age pension assets test. Because mm-hmm. the big challenge going forward is homes have gone from being two to three times annual incomes mm. to seven to eight times. So you're buying a home, paying it off over the course of 30 years. And at the moment in our system, that's seven or eight years of your annual income that you're just that just sits there in an asset locked up until you pass away and you give it to your kids. Mm. That's not very good for either your retirement income and it's not very good for your working age income either because you're spending a whole bunch of your income to pay down this asset and leaving it as inheritance. Mm. So we do need to include more of the value in the home and the assets test mm. to account for the fact that some people own and some people won't. And then also try to draw down on that asset in retirement to help fund a higher retirement income. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about homes and housing. Uh, it's been a hot button topic for many Australians in recent years. Uh, we've spoken about it many times on this podcast, you and I, um, increasingly expensive and unattainable for many. What does the housing story really look like at the moment? I think the story looks, you've got to distinguish the short-term story mm-hmm. where prices are falling in Melbourne and Sydney, but not so much elsewhere, um, versus the long-term story, which is that housing has become increasingly expensive both to buy and to rent. So the short-term story is house prices are falling in Melbourne and Sydney by, you know, we've had falls of at least sort of around 10%, depending on the measure, somewhat more, somewhat less. Um, over the course of the last year, year and a bit in Melbourne, Sydney. Um, but they've come against the backdrop of a 40, 50% increase in house prices over the last few years, so that today house prices are still much higher today, uh, something like 15, 17% higher in Sydney and uh, 27% higher in Melbourne than they were at the end of 2014. So mm-hmm. housing is still expensive. Home ownership's probably turned around a little bit. It's probably rising for the first time in a generation at the moment because... We've got fewer investors purchasing homes and so probably more homeowners are purchase, um, own occupiers are purchasing them instead at auctions. Um, but we've still got a long way to go because home ownership has fallen through the floor, particularly amongst younger and poorer Australians over the course of the last two and a half decades. So we used to be in a world where your chances of owning a home as a younger person were pretty much the same regardless of where you sat in the income distribution. 
and now it's very steeply graded by income. So mm-hmm. those that are the wealthiest 20% of say 25 to 34 year olds, younger, younger cohort that you expect to be buying homes, most of them are still buying homes. But amongst the poorest 20% of that cohort, it's now one in five when it used to be three in five. Mm. So it's changed a lot in a very short or relatively short period of time. And we think those trends are going to keep going unless there's action taken. So let's talk about the action. What priorities uh, should the government focus on? Should our next government focus on? Uh, Look, I think... The big challenge in the long term is to boost the supply of housing in Australia. Mm. So Australia's housing is relatively scarce. We don't actually have that much. And so in the long term, if you were able to build, say, 50,000 more homes a year for a decade, uh, which would be about a 20 to 25% 25 increase from where we are today, then you could see prices up to 20% lower and rents up to 20% lower than they are currently. And that would make an enormous impact on people's lives. Absolutely. Um, it would mean that, you know, after you've counted for your housing costs, it's effectively a boost to your take-home pay. It's what you've got left to spend on everything else in life, and that's a pretty good thing. The challenge is, of course, that the Commonwealth does not control um, the, the the main levers here. So uh, land use planning rules, um, which are run by council, our local governments and our state governments, are really the main impediment here. Mm. And so the Commonwealth will have to work with the states. Mm. And it's always hard when the Commonwealth has to work through the states to achieve a policy objective and in this instance, they've probably got to throw a, a big check at them to get them to do so. Mm. So you've got to set up some targets. Um, we need to probably reconstitute something like the National Housing Supply Council that used to exist in the Rudd-Gillard years. Mm-hmm. Um, you get it to do the work to understand where the problems are. Then set targets with the states about how much more housing they're going to build and where. And then reward the states that actually achieve that outcome. Kind of like what we did in the 1990s under what were called the National Competition Policy Reforms, where we paid the states for reforms they undertook. Because the Commonwealth has a big stake in the outcome. They get a lot of the extra tax revenue that's generated if the economy grows. And obviously, they're accountable for housing outcomes in the same way the states are. Mm. So that's the big one. And then the other ones, really, the, what the Commonwealth can do is relax or reform tax and welfare rules to reduce demand for housing. So negative gearing the capital gains tax discount would make a difference. Yep. We've had a lot of talk recently that they would crash the market. I think there's very little evidence that that would take place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's what's interesting is given where the polls are, there's probably a fair a fair bit of any impact of Labor's policies is probably built into the market. Mm. Because, you know, if, 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 if that Labor are ahead at the moment as we do this podcast and there's a fair chance they would make the reforms if they get in, Labor's reforms um, are probably largely priced into the market. Mm-hmm. We think that they would in the long term have an impact on prices of only about 1% to 2%. The reason being, of course, that um, the, the value of the tax breaks you're taking away, a billion to $2 billion a year in the long term, is small compared to a six six and a half trillion dollar housing market. It's just not worth enough to drive the results. So instead, the main benefit is the budget. So we should just get on the budget benefits. So we should just get on and do those. Yeah. And they are really about paying for the sort of workforce participation reforms that we would then use to boost the economy down the track. Hmm. Including the home and the assets test we've talked about a little bit, that would be a great idea. Um, it would save the budget a lot of money. It would reduce housing prices by a little, mm-hmm. but not all that much. Um, and then you're into a world of helping those at the bottom more. So we clearly need to boost rent assistance and we do need to boost the amount of social housing uh, for those that are at severe risk of homelessness. So other countries have implemented what's called a housing first strategy. Uh, the fin- Finland is a classic case where they've managed to halve homelessness in a generation. Basically by, it's pretty simple, those that are at severe risk of homelessness, you give them access to emergency and then long-term housing. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Australia has a house, homelessness population of just over 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't require that many homes in order to really make a dent in that. That would have a budgetary cost, um, but we can probably manage that. The challenge is making sure you give the housing to the people that need it most, and rather than giving it further up the income distribution uh, as affordable housing as Labor is currently proposing. So obviously housing has been an issue for a while um, and there have been many policies that have been considered and some implemented. Why can't we just keep going with what we've got? Well, the problem is that we haven't, reckon- we haven't reckoned with what are the consequences of the policies that we've gone with and how valuable or ineffective, in fact, they would be. Mm. So the things we've gone with tend to be popular but ineffective. So first-time owners grants, incentive stamp duty concessions for first-time owners, uh, downsizing, trying to push people to the regions. Mm. All these things sound really popular if you're going to go on 3AW um, or 2GB or on the ABC, but they don't sound all that popular, but they're not all that effective. Mm. And the evidence is very clear that giving more money to buyers to pay for housing in the form of first-time owners grants is just going to push up prices. They are quite rightly called first-home seller's grants Mm. uh, because the person who wins in that transaction is the person who sells the house because they get paid more for the house. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brendan. Um, The Orange Book covers all of Grattan's programs and we'll now spend some time with each of Grattan's program directors to discuss their policy priorities. Joining me now is Marion Terrell, Grattan's Transport and Cities Program Director. Welcome, Marion. Hi, Megan. Marion, let's let's focus first on the second half of your title, Cities. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the shape of Australia? What is the kind of flow between cities and regions and where should the Commonwealth be focused? So Australia is a highly urbanised country. Um, we've got nearly two-thirds of Australians living in cities. And by international standards, that is on the high side. And there is a drift towards the cities, and it's been going on for a very long time. The population is tending to go to the cities and to the larger centres. The fact that Australia is a wealthy country by international standards and has been for a long time is inextricably linked to the fact that we're a highly urbanised country Mm. and have been for a long time. So this isn't to say that the regions are not important or that they're getting a raw deal. I think a lot of the the story that we tend to hear is oversimplified, the idea that there's two Australias. I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of the indicators in regions are, are pretty positive, um, economic indi- indicators and social indicators. Um, so what we need to do is to sort of think about the, the role of cities in the economy and society of the country, and it is a very important role and it is a growing role. Mm. Let's, let's shift now to specifically transport in cities. What is the Commonwealth's role in transport infrastructure at the moment? So generally, the Commonwealth doesn't own or operate the transport networks, but it still has a role because it is a funder. Uh, so every budget announces a, suite, announces a suite of transport projects, and most of the time the, this funding takes the form of grants to state governments. So the Commonwealth cares a lot about this, but so it does provide this funding because it's got a greater revenue-raising capacity than the states. But the states build and own and operate the networks. The Commonwealth, um, of course, is not just a funder. The Commonwealth cares a lot about the effective functioning of cities. And that's because 
The cities are where people, are, where most of the population growth is concentrated, where most of the population is concentrated, and also they are, are where we generate a bigger proportion of GDP on the whole than in um, regional areas. In terms of the Commonwealth selecting projects, are, are they focused on the right things when deciding what they're going to fund? Well, it wouldn't be election time if we were not talking about all the infrastructure promises. <laughs> um, and, I, and, and, the, and the Transport and Cities Program will have more to say on that later in the election campaign. So it is very typical um, for, for projects to be announced in the context of an election. And, and, and I suppose what that means is often the projects, um, we don't know much about them. They're announced with some dollar amount attached to them. But in reality, projects that are announced in this way without having their due diligence done um, are riven with all sorts of problems. They're quite high risk. They tend to start off as big and iconic. and But they're very prone to cost overruns. And the cost overruns that they experience are bigger on average than by 23%, in fact, than for similar projects announced at other points in the election cycle. So what, what do we need to see done differently going forward to ensure that funding of transport infrastructure is actually meeting the needs of Australians rather than politicians? Yes, so the both sides of politics um, are committed um, to the institution of Infrastructure Australia and, and both have made promises that they will... Um, listen to the word of the independent advisory body and that they they won't promise things un, uh, until they've been through Infrastructure Australia. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But mm-hmm. it, basically, um, both sides have, prom- have um, not have breached that promise. Mm. Um, what, I think high-risk projects in particular should be more closely scrutinised and um, I think having an independent advisory body is a very helpful institution, but it is important that it's listened to. Mm. There's another thing that the Commonwealth can do as well, which is that it can, um, because Australia is not that big a country and what all the states do is not that different one from the other, it, it's very useful, I think, to the extent that the government plays a role in setting standards and aggregating data so that all the states, particularly the smaller ones, can benefit from learnings from around the country. Mm. There's two particular ways which this, where this would make a big difference. One, in the process before a project is decided on upfront, um, the Commonwealth sets many standards that um, project proponents have to adhere to. But one of the big gaps, I think, is that the discount rate that is used is quite unrealistic. Mm-hmm. So the discount rate is this device that is used to put future costs and benefits over different time trajectories onto a comparable basis so that you can be- compare project A with project B. But this, the discount rate um, should move with the, with the risk of projects and it also should move with the cost of money. But in fact, it's been stuck at 7% for, uh, since the late 80s even though the cost, price of money has varied enormously in that time. So I think the Commonwealth could show some real leadership here and change that um, this important part of project assessment to something that is much more realistic. Mm. So that's one thing I'd like to see. And then a second thing um, is just to, um, is this learning from the experience of past projects. We've got a major untapped resource in the form of data on completed projects. So some of this data is collected, but it's not collated. And some of it's not even collected, but it should be. 
So to, to compile, a, a na compile nationwide information about completed projects would help all the states and territories to benefit from the understanding of the entire portfolio of past Australian projects. And I, I think that it, it is a job really that no single state can do on its own. This is really a job for the Commonwealth and it, um, at least the first step of this would be very easy to do because uh, some of this information, as I say, is collected as a condition of payment. Mm. You mentioned specifically a, a structural change that could take place um, in the Orange Book um, to take out some of the politics out of decision-making. Can you talk through what that would actually encompass? Yes. Um, what I think here is that um, we th there's, there's sort of no effective break on politicians promising projects, um, sometimes with, with very little work behind them, um, and often in the this happens a lot in the context of an election. Mm. The problem with that, and that wouldn't really be a problem if we had a robust process for cancelling projects if they turned out to be dud ideas upon closer scrutiny. <laughs> but we don't have that kind of process. What we find is that um, when that happens, the politician treats it as a real commitment and the public treats it as a real commitment. And, and the majority of projects ever promised do go on to be built. So it is important, um, given that we demand that politicians keep their promises, that they're a bit more circumspect about making those promises and the basis on which they make them. So I would like it if the Commonwealth would only con contribute funding to projects where there's been a full business case and that's been assessed by Infrastructure Australia and it's been made public. And in that way, I think um, it wouldn't stop governments from funding projects where the business case is weak. Mm. And happen, that will happen, for example, with um, some of the regional or rural projects or sometimes if there's going to be an international event. or there, there, There's nothing to stop a government from making these decisions. But what this would do, I think, is to make them do their due diligence first, not, not, pu not promise public money um, in a reckless manner. Mm. Sounds very reasonable to me. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Marion, and thank you for your work on the Orange Book. Thanks, Megan. I've got with me Grattan Energy Program Director Tony Wood. Tony, thanks for joining us. Um, energy continues to be a talking piece in Australia, both as a political football and a headline grabber. Dare I ask, Tony, what exactly is the state of Australia's electricity supply today? I guess the, the reasons that energy and climate change are headline grabbers and almost certainly will be an issue in the uh, upcoming um, election mm. uh, is very much in people's minds. Uh, firstly, our electricity prices uh, are higher than most comparable countries. Secondly, uh, reliability of our system is lower than most com comparable countries. Mm. And thirdly, our emissions are higher than most comparable countries, and they're not going down in line with our targets. So we've managed to get three out of three, <laughs> all on the wrong side. And um, not surprisingly, that would we haven't even, for example, we haven't even traded off. Um, lower uh, prices for more reliability. We've actually got all three wrong. Well, it certainly seems like we have a long way to go to bring our electricity supply in line with those comparable countries. So let's talk through some of the ways we can do that. Starting with emissions, um, what are your policy suggestions for having a meaningful impact on emissions reduction and climate change policy? 
Well, the good news is that we actually have all the tools available. Some of them we've even taken out of the toolbox previously and put them back in again quite quickly. <laughs> um, and some of them, of course, the use of some of those tools, some of them were a bit sharp for young children, also resulted in the, um, in, in the political deaths of several leaders of, of political parties, in fact, including Malcolm Turnbull twice. Twice. So this is a pretty dangerous set of tools to be using, but let's make sure that adults use them in the future, maybe. <laughs> so the, the main tool that we would suggest, and we've always suggested this, if we could, would be to have an economy-wide uh, limit on emissions, namely a carbon price. Mm. However, the political climate has not for some time allowed us to do that. And so that means we have to deal with what we have, and so what we're suggesting is that a policy that was worked over very heavily by the current coalition, what is now a caretaker government, um, that policy called the National Energy Guarantee is not first best, possibly not even second best, mm. but it would be enough to get us started. And in our view, that would be a place to begin to reduce emissions in the electricity sector and then complement that with a number of other mechanisms in other sectors, such as transport, industrial emissions, and that, and, and so forth, to um, bring our emissions overall down because electricity ultimately is only about a third of our total emissions. Mm. You mentioned in the Orange Book the need for well-regulated markets uh, to lower costs and increase reliability, one of the issues you were talking about. So what are some of the ways the government can achieve that? Well, I guess one of the things we've seen, this is around the world, a lot of countries have adopted a form of uh, markets to deliver the outcome. And sometimes they get confused that the market, instead of being the means to the end, becomes the end in itself. And once mm -hmm. that happens, then you're in deep trouble because people sometimes think that the market is this magical beast or this magical god even that we have to pay homage to. And it's never that. The market is there to achieve what we want. And if it doesn't do it, we should either change it or get rid of it. Now, in our view, a well-regulated market is and always has been the most efficient way to deliver electricity and gas uh, services to consumers. Um, however, if you have a market, and we introduced these markets about 20 years ago, and then you ignore it, then you break it several times, then you throw it down the stairs a few times, like most toys of children, ultimately you say, well, this isn't working so well, maybe I don't want it anymore a more constructive approach we would suggest is to fix it. Mm. So there are a number of things that could be done to our markets to return to an efficient market structure to deliver what we want. One of them is to continue some of the things that are already in place, namely the, um, the better regulation of the electricity networks. Mm -hmm. Secondly, putting in place the complement to the National Energy Guarantee's emissions reduction obligation, the retailer reliability obligation to ensure that as we do move down a path to lower emissions, we also maintain the reliability of the system by ensuring we have the capacity that we have. So there are a number of things there. And then thirdly, I think it probably equally importantly, is that we have many recommendations from a number of reviews that have already been undertaken. Mm. But sometimes we get overwhelmed with reviews and we just have too many things. And so we don't do any of them. And only a few of the ones that were recommended by Alan Finkel and by the ACCC have been implemented. Mm -hmm. We need to have a focused agenda to implement those changes as well. That It's not a dramatic reform agenda, but it would actually head us in a much better direction than we are going now. Mm. One of the areas you talk about in the Orange Book is um, underwriting of new generation. Can you talk through that issue and, and what needs to be done to, to change the situation? Well, one of the things that happens when governments see a market not delivering 
what they wanted, is to ignore or deny that there are things happening in that market which may even be beyond their control. So, for example, if the cost of, if the cost of coal has gone up, if old, high-polluting but low-cost coal-fired power stations close because they are old, um, then governments sometimes don't want to recognise that. So then they think, ah, we better do something else to fix this market. And almost invariably, that something else makes it worse. Mm. But that doesn't stop governments from doing it. So, for example, what we see happening is two or three things. Firstly, we have seen the current coalition, now caretaker government, looking to threaten businesses, what they, what's called the big stick legislation. Unfortunately, when you go look behind this proposal, what you find is that the actions that they're proposing to use, A, um, the misconducts they're concerned about uh, have not even been identified as a major problem, and B, even if they are, and even if the actions were to work, they wouldn't have much impact on prices anyway. Mm. And so you see this sort of um, what sounds like governments being uh, very uh, prepared to take action against recalcitrant companies mm. actually being a knee-jerk reaction to something um, which is probably going to make things worse and very unlikely to make them better. And this um, this idea of big stick legislation, or alternatively, the brother or sister of that at the moment, is the idea of, well, if we can't get the investment we want, then we'll do it. Mm. And so the government says, we will now underwrite or directly invest in new um, supply, even if that's not been something that the uh, th- those who've looked at the market seriously suggest is needed. Sometimes recommendations from bodies like the ACCC can be taken by governments and um, bastardised, and, th- and that's a little bit of what we're seeing here as well. Mm. What's the role of gas in Australia's energy future? A lot less than it, many people thought, I mm. think, is the right answer. And there's two reasons for that. One is um, the dramatic reduction in the cost of solar and wind energy. And so the idea that gas would be necessary... To, be a tr- to provide a transition to a lower emissions future from one dependent overwhelmingly on coal with some gas to one dependent overwhelmingly on solar and wind um, using gas as a transition, that will almost certainly not be the most efficient way to make this transition. So one reason is the dramatic fall in the cost of solar, something like 80% in the last 10 years. And the other one is the dramatic rise in the cost of gas. The two, of course, complement each other somewhat unpleasantly in a sense for the gas market. But what he means, the role of gas is unlikely to therefore be a major fuel of transition. However, gas may very well have a much more different but equally valuable, possibly more valuable role in complementing wind and solar. Because wind and solar are intermittent. That doesn't mean they're unreliable. I mean, the sun comes up every day. It's so very reliable. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the, obviously at night time the sun isn't shining, mm. sometimes the wind isn't blowing, sometimes both mm. at the same time. So that means you've got to have something to back that up. At the moment we don't really have, in my view, an answer in respect which would be sold by a combination of batteries or even pumped hydro, which was the previous Prime Minister's favourite toy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the role of gas is likely to be in that area. The other piece of good news there is not only can gas play that role, but secondly... If you're only using the gas-fired power stations for a short period of the year when the, you need them to make to provide that uh, backup, then the cost of that gas isn't quite so dramatic as it would be if we were dependent upon the gas um, a lot more for many, many more hours of the year. 
So there has been some talk in the news previously about a, a gas shortage in Australia. Is that likely going forward? It shouldn't be because there's no shortage of potential gas available in Australia. Mm. Now, Australia is a big place and some of that gas is not conveniently where the people are. One of the things that's been happening over the last 10 years uh, has been the gradual depletion of the historically available, close to big city gas sources that have driven our gas market and to some extent our electricity market for a long time because gas can complement coal, particularly in places where we didn't have quite so much coal like South Australia. So the Gippsland Basin off the coast of Victoria and the Cooper Basin in the middle of Australia have been those sources of gas, but they have been running down. What that means is that while there may be some more gas there, it's becoming increasingly expensive to extract. Mm. And secondly, other sources of gas also are becoming increasingly expensive to extract. And some of them, such as coal seam gas, where um, fracture stimulation or otherwise described as this horrible word, fracking, um, that sort of gas source comes with it. A lot of concerns about environmental impacts. Now, they could probably be managed, but it doesn't mean that many people get very concerned about that. So I think that the, 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 the potential for gas development in this country is quite high, but we have got some barriers to achieving that. So, Tony, it does seem like some of the recommendations we've discussed are going to require significant investment in the sector. Why can't we have a low emissions economy without higher electricity prices? Well, we can have a lower, we can have part of both provided we get it right. What we certainly don't want to have is a high emissions future with high electricity prices, which seems to be where we are now. But isn't that what every government promises? Low, Pro- low emissions, low cost? They promise, <laughs> and sometimes it would be a good idea if they're a little bit more honest with the Australian people. Mm. And I think while there will be, I am sure, an enormous debate from both sides of politics, and maybe three sides of politics, because one of the concerns we have is that the Greens have the capacity to stuff this up again, as they did back in 2009, when they once back then decided they would not, uh, they would, they would absolutely hang out for the perfect, and they didn't even get the good, and mm. we could have this time around again. But both of the major political parties are going to have a major fight about this stuff. Now, I think the there will be so much noise around the detail. I think many of many voters, except those who are passionately interested about this in this sort of area, will tend to turn off and maybe um, be struggling to work out what to do. If you're concerned about climate change, for example, the editorial in today's age suggested, well, vote Labor. Um, But I think when people think about this, it's going to be hard. Mm. However, what I think will happen, and this is what I think is critically important, is that whichever side of politics is able, for the first time, to deliver a compelling and credible narrative for the Australian population, because I don't think Australians are stupid. Mm. They have a very good um, sensitivity to um, picking up those things which just do not make sense, otherwise known as bullshit. (laughs) Um, The Australian people will see through that. So I think the party that can develop a compelling narrative and bring the Australian people with them is the one that will succeed. And we saw that, sadly, in a way, with both Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. Mm. I think the reasons both of them were extremely popular for short periods of time was because they did have the narrative. Mm. Unfortunately, they didn't have the capacity to deliver on the narrative, Mm. um, and that's where they came unstuck. This time I'd like to think that the next government, the next Prime Minister, Energy Minister, do have the narrative, but also have the capacity to deliver that narrative to the people, recognising that it will not be 
everything that everyone would like in the perfect world, but it might actually be something that could work this time around. The narrative and the nous, perhaps. Indeed. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today, Tony. Here is hoping for some real action on energy policy from our next government. Thanks, Megan. Thanks. Joining me next is Stephen Duckett, Health Program Director for Grattan. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Megan. Stephen, Australia arguably has reasonably good health outcomes compared with other advanced economies. What are we getting right? So when you compare us with similar countries, Australia spends less on average per head of population or as a share of gross domestic product on healthcare, and we get more. Our life expectancy is better than average. So, you know, on the two on two critical measures, sort of a quality or an outcome measure and a cost measure, we're, we're going well. There does seem to be some areas for improvement, though. Where are the gaps in our system most notable? Well, there's a couple of ways of answering that. The, the, the numbers I gave you were averages, and so, mm. of course, it's about the average Australian's life expectancy. Indigenous Australian's life expectancy is about 10 years shorter than than the, the non-Indigenous Australians. Mm-hmm. So that's a critical issue. But across the board... Just because we're doing well internationally doesn't mean to say we can't do better. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying in the in the Orange Book is that, yes, we need to do better. Yes, we can improve our outcomes. Yes, we can improve our efficiency. And yes, we can improve our access to healthcare. So what role does the Commonwealth Government have in improving the healthcare system in Australia? About 70% of all money... Uh, spent in the healthcare system comes from government, Commonwealth and state, and Tinsy went come from local government. And the Commonwealth has the, the big money levers; it spends more than half of the uh, of the government funding, uh, and it spends it on a range of things. It gives money to uh, states for public hospitals. It gives it spends money on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. It spends money on the Medicare benefit scheme and it spends money on private health insurance. So some of the big aspects of healthcare in this country are Commonwealth responsibilities. Mm. So let's break down those areas that we were previously discussing. Firstly, how do we increase efficiency of healthcare provision? Well, there's lots of ways we can do that. So first of all, one of the things that Commonwealth spends money on is grants to the states for public hospitals, and it has a formula which says this is the national efficient price uh, and we'll, we'll pay the states based on this national efficient price. But that's set at the average. Why isn't it set at the best performance or the best 25% of hospitals or the best third of hospitals? And so you can put more pressure on the states to drive uh, their efficiency in their hospitals and, of course, the Commonwealth would save money at the same time. So that's just one way. We can also save money in other ways. We can look at what we pay on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. Now, we're actually quite quite good now on pharmaceuticals, but we're still in some areas paying less than, uh, pay, paying more for pharmaceuticals than other countries do. In pathology, for example, uh, we've got basically just a couple of pathology, com- big, big, big pathology companies are running all the pathology services uh, outside hospitals. And they're getting all the benefits of the economies of scale. Why don't we say, why doesn't the taxpayer say, well, hang about, you're doing all this automation. Uh, that makes some of the, the cost of uh, pathology tests cheaper. We want to share in that, and, and we should actually move to a new method of paying for pathology. Mm. What about the quality of care? What changes can be made there? 
Well, as I said earlier, Australia has a good quality of care. We've, our life expectancy is good, for example, as, as, as one of the big measures of that. Mm. But again, that doesn't mean to say we can't do better. And so, for example, with hospitals, about if you go into a hospital uh, for an overnight stay, you've got a one in four chance of having something additional happen while you're there. You might, it might be something really serious, like falling out of bed and breaking your, your leg, or it might be uh, you're just feeling nauseous, or it might feel you might get a bit of delirium and start uh, being thinking you have to get out of bed and, and falling and so on. So there's lots of things that can go wrong. And so what we're saying is that Hospitals need to know about that. Hospitals need to be told how they can, imp- uh, where, where they're uh, not going as well as their peers, and they need to have all the information so they can understand it and so they can analyse and they can improve. So one of the big things we can do with quality is actually to give information to the hospitals, give information to the clinicians, and help them understand where they need to improve. And what about areas like obesity and, and the conditions that are causing ill health? Exactly, Megan. So this is another area where we can do so much better. So, for example, uh, obesity is not just something that that happens. Obesity is caused by your peers encouraging you to drink sugary drinks, for example, or other sort of what what we now call an obesogenic environment. That are the factors in the environment that encourage us towards obesity. And we're saying we need to intervene in that. We need to actually talk about well, if you're going to make a decision to uh, buy a sugary drink, for example, you should pay the full costs of that. And the full cost of that include the cost to the taxpayer of uh, the healthcare costs and all the other costs that are associated with that. And so what we've recommended is that we put a tax on sugary drinks so that if you're going to use them, if you're going to drink them, you pay for them. Mm. What about probably one of the, the key points that you made early on, which is equity in our healthcare system? How do we ensure an equitable system that's accessible to all? Well, again, Australia is quite good on this, but we've got some big, uh, big holes. Mm. One of the big holes is out-of-pocket costs. Australia uh, relies more on out-of-pocket costs than any other similar country. We, we're forcing the consumers to spend money out of their pockets, and that has major disadvantages because what it means is if you're poorer and you need health care you don't go to the doctor because you can't afford it if you don't go to the doctor because you can't afford it you, you things might get worse and you end up going to the hospital and it costs the whole health system a lot more mm. so we've got to really start addressing out-of-pocket costs and the area where out-of-pocket costs the most are in dental Two million Australians miss out on dental care because of -of out-of-pocket costs. So we recommend we make the start on moving towards a universal dental scheme and we start by providing a dental scheme that covers kids and uh, pensioners and healthcare card holders and this would cost about a billion dollars a year but it would help to address this major weakness in the health system. And what about palliative care, Stephen? You speak about that in the Orange Book as well. So this is another area where, which is a very funny mix. It's a, it's a mix of an efficiency measure, that is we can, we can save money, and it's a quality measure because we can give better services to people at the same time. A whole lot of people who want to die at home, for example, are not dying at home. A whole lot of people are not getting access to palliative care. As a result of no access to palliative care, they're going into hospital more frequently. They're going into intensive care more frequently. And interestingly, 
if you get palliative care earlier, you actually live longer. So, so it's a quality benefit uh, for the patient and it's an efficiency benefit for the health system. So we're suggesting we should have a, an expansion of palliative care to benefit everybody. You also um, identify a couple of areas um, that do need more expansion, um, as well as palliative care. You talk about outpatient services and expanding pharmacy roles. Well, both of these are very important ones. And so I'll just f- focus first on outpatients. Mm. Out-of-pocket costs, as I said, are big, and so you end up with uh, people going to a specialist and paying a whole lot of money out-of-pocket, and one of the reasons they go to a specialist uh, in the private sector and and end up paying money out-of-pocket is because there are long waiting times for outpatients. Most of the states don't publish how long the waiting times are, only a couple of states, Queensland and uh, Victoria, for example, publish the, the waiting time for outpatients. What we're saying is the states need to be publishing the waiting times uh, for out- outpatient services and the Commonwealth should probably pay a bit more and pay a bigger share of the cost of outpatients to provide a bit of an encouragement to the states uh, for, um, out of, uh, for, for to improve outpatient services. And one of the interesting things is, as part of the uh, Labor Party's cancer policy, they've picked up uh, a component of that already in in their uh, in their in their policy, and how about increasing the role of pharmacists? So, what we have, if you live in rural Australia, you often find it really hard to get access to a GP. And what we're saying is that one the the GPs are doing a whole lot of things that pharmacists could do. Uh, pharmacists are well trained in medication management, well understand issues of immunisation, uh, well understand how to manage uh, people with chronic illness and, and this, all these uh, medications, multi-medications they're on and so on. Mm. And so what we're suggesting is, look, in conjunction with the GP, the pharmacist might take on some responsibility for, for those medication issues, renewing the scripts and so on, and that would free up the doctor so the patients can see the doctor in the in the local community, for the things that only the doctor can do. So this would benefit patients by uh, giving them better access to healthcare. The doctors would be doing much more complex things which they would enjoy doing, and the pharmacists would have a broader role. And so again, it's a, a quality improvement and an efficiency improvement at the same time. Well, thank you so much for your insights today, Stephen. Pleasure, Megan. now got with me School Education Program Director Peter Goss. Welcome back to the podcast, Peter. Nice to see you again, Megan. So tell me, how does Australia compare as it currently stands, both in performance and funding, to comparable OECD countries? Overall in school education, Australia does pretty well. This benchmarking exercise was fascinating. We often compare ourselves to the whole of the OECD. That includes countries like Mexico, Turkey and Chile, who spend a whole lot less but do a whole lot worse. Mm. So we got a more nuanced and a better view when we did this careful benchmarking. In terms of performance, we do slightly worse than average for the countries that are most like us. Mm -hmm. Our equity is about par. What I found was that uh, the school funding bit where newspaper reports often say that we're big spenders, that wasn't true compared to to this group. Mm. Overall, we spend a little bit less, but we spend a lot less government money. Mm. 
But I looked at all of those bits together and I found something fascinating, which was that I couldn't find a country in the OECD who clearly did better than us on performance and on equity and did so for a whole bunch less money. Hmm. There are certainly countries who spend more money and do worse, Hmm. um, but no one has found a way of doing education at really high quality and equitably on the cheap. Mm. Um, And it it points us to an important finding, which is that the right strategic direction here is to be spending a little bit more money and to be making sure that it really goes into the disadvantaged schools where it will have the most difference. Mm. Let's let's drill down into um, some of those areas a little bit more. Talk us through what, um, what measurements you used for things like student outcomes. Comparing student outcomes across the across the globe is tricky. Mm. Um, we used a, an assessment called PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment. It's done for 15-year-olds, and there they test their skills in reading, in maths, and in science. Um, the one that we chose to look at was mathematics, because uh, mathematics is important in its own right. Mm. It was also the best predictor of how countries uh, did across the three. Mm. Australia scored a just under the just under five hundred, um, whereas the other the other countries we compare ourselves against scored about ten points higher. Now, putting that in context, that's worth about four months of extra learning. And some of the countries that we're comparing ourselves are close to an extra year of learning ahead of us in in mathematics by the time students are 15. That's starting to be really quite a big deal. Mm. On the other hand, we do do better than places like the United States. The biggest thing that we notice with the, uh, the results is that Australian students are not doing as well now as Australians used to a decade ago. So somehow we've slipped back in absolute terms. That's not good. No. And, and when it came to equity, what were you looking at um, in terms of measuring how equitable Australian education is? Again, equity is a tricky thing to understand because there, there's a component as to how strong the relationship is between disadvantage and results, mm. but also how consistent it is. We looked at one which is how strong the relationship is. If you take students from the bottom quartile of the the socioeconomic distribution, so the most disadvantaged 25%, and compare their average score to the most advantaged 25%, and then turn it into how many years of learning is that gap? In Australia, there was about a three-year gap between the most advantaged and disadvantaged uh, groups of students at age 15. Um, that sounds really big. Mm. It is really big. Mm. The reality is actually most of the countries we compared ourselves to had similar figures. The standout country in terms of equity was Canada, mm. who had about a 2.4-year gap. On the other hand, Germany had a three-and-a-half-year gap. But really, most of the countries we compared ourselves to had a similar scale gap. It's something we could aim to do better, but so could others. Mm. So, Peter, I guess the big question here is why are you and I even having this conversation? I mean, it is the Commonwealth Orange Book. um, And in fact, most school education reforms are the responsibility of state governments, correct? That's absolutely right. But you have identified some areas that the Commonwealth could could in fact add value for Australia's school education sector. You've You've suggested three that are kind of the most pressing. Can you talk us through those three big ticket items? 
Absolutely. While school education is the direct responsibility of the states and territories, the Commonwealth has been involved in it for many decades now. And so in some areas like school funding, they're already there and they need to continue to be there. So the first of the big areas that the Commonwealth should be focusing on is getting school funding right. Mm. There's been a bunch of improvements over the last few years. There's still a way to go. And effectively, the Commonwealth, working with the states, needs to finish the job and then move on. Mm. The second is... uh, um, a range of areas that fall under the, uh, the, the title of the National School Agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, they, when the Commonwealth gives money, it wants something in return. The Commonwealth, uh, um, under the coalition, has actually come up with a pretty sensible list of things that the state should work on and the Commonwealth should work on with them. That includes having a National Evidence Institute, so a body that aggregates all of the evidence about what's working best, Mm. puts it in one place, and then allows everyone to access it. There are some boring but important things in here, one called a unique student identifier. Mm -hmm. If you can track where students are going, then you have a much better uh, chance of uh, understanding what's working. Understanding the teaching workforce, so there is another there's about there are eight things that were put into the recent national agreement. They're all pretty sensible. The Commonwealth should do their part in them. Mm. The biggest one of those is this national evidence body. Um, you mentioned um, that that is the coalition's plan. If we were to see a Labor government formed, would that plan still um, be put into effect? I suspect that if Labor win the the upcoming election much of the national reform agreement would stick. Mm -hmm. There would be potentially some tweaks, but actually around the funding side Mm. rather than around the agreed areas where the Commonwealth should work with the states. As I said, they're pretty sensible. They're in line with what Labor has signalled as its high priorities, particularly both the Coalition and um, and Labor have already given their public support to the idea of a National Evidence Institute. Mm. It's, a, it's now about getting it up and running, making sure it's genuinely independent enough and, and giving it a chance to have a real big difference. So mm. there's a, a good amount of agreement mm. on that level. So that's one and two, funding. National Evidence Body is part of the broader national agreements. The third big ticket item is initial teacher education. So every year we train thousands of new potential teachers. Over the long term, the effectiveness of the the people who come out of those courses will really have a big impact on the effectiveness of the whole system. Mm. The Commonwealth has a role in this because the Commonwealth funds universities. Mm. And so this is one of the main direct areas where the Federal Education Minister has some real leverage if they choose to use it. Mm. The challenge is that over the course of a number of decades now, the academic capabilities of those going into initial teacher education have been dropping. Mm. If we go way back, it was actually one of the few areas where women could get a university-level education before medicine and law opened up. Mm. Now, the, the fact that women can freely go into any higher form of higher education is fantastic and really important, but actually has uh, hurt the quality of people coming into school education. Mm. 
The Commonwealth should be aiming to encourage high achievers to come into education, but that's more than just a branding campaign. Mm. It's not about saying this is wonderful. It's actually making the career more attractive. Again, that gets back into state responsibility. The Commonwealth can affect the uh, can affect initial teacher education in two ways. Mm-hmm. One, it can send signals that it wants higher achievers to you know, to apply to to initial teacher education, and there are some ways that we, we may talk about on another date about <laughs> how that might work. It can also follow through very rigorously on a series of reforms that were put in place in 2015. They were called the Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group, or Mm -hmm. TMAG. It identified a number of ways where initial teacher education could be strengthened. A lot of those things seem fairly sensible. It's not clear whether there are sufficient consequences for universities that are failing to lift their game. Mm. So what the Commonwealth should do, whoever the new Federal Education Minister is, they should signal before the end of the next term of government, that process is going to be really rigorously reviewed. That gives the universities time to deliver on what they've been asked to. Um, If they are genuinely delivering, well and good. If they're not, it's time for stronger measures. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. I look forward to discussing some of these issues with you further down the line. Always a pleasure, Megan. Thanks. Time to talk higher education, and to do that, I have with me our Higher Education Program Director, Andrew Norton. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, Big. It seems like it's going to be an interesting election campaign for higher education. Andrew, you've recently written an article on how different the higher education policy platforms of the two major parties are this time around. But before we get to that, what does the landscape for higher ed look like currently? Well, at the moment, we've got flat funding for domestic students. Uh, We have declining funding for research and we have an international student boom. So from the university's point of view, the international students are the growth area. And if things were to stay at the status quo, what would the future of of higher education look like? So in the short term, it probably doesn't matter a lot because demand is declining for higher education anyway. But from about 2022, 2023, We'll start to get the first of the the baby boom from the middle of last decade looking for a university place. And by the end of the decade, we'll have 50,000 more 18-year-olds than we have today. And so unless the system can expand by that point, uh, many of those students or many of those applicants for a place will not get in. Mm. So what do we need to do then to improve higher education policy in Australia and look forward to that time when the demand will rise? In my view, the single most important thing to do is to restore the demand-driven funding system Mm -hmm. that we had between 2012 and 2017. It was ended at that point. When we have that, universities can simply take additional places, take additional students, and they'll be fully funded for those. So it'll align the incentives with the reality of this extra demand. Mm. I hear demand-driven come around a lot and it's discussed a lot. Just 
Just for any listener who's not sure, can you just explain exactly what that means? What's an implied contrast with the previous system, which was essentially supply-driven, and what that meant was the government decided how many student places there would be across the country Mm. and then how many would be at each individual university. And so under demand-driven funding, there's no overall set number for the country and there's no overall number for each university. Mm -hmm. And how would you see vocational education playing in this space? Well, vocational education has lost out in the competition with higher education, particularly in the big cities, uh, over the last decade. But there's a lot of pressure, both side of politics, from industry, uh, to actually try and rebuild the vocational system so that it is a a more attractive choice to Mm. young people. Mm. You mention also in the Orange Book the cost of higher education. What needs to change there? Well, obviously, if you have more people going to university, the costs are going to go up. So would accept that. Mm. But it has the cost of government has gone up a lot, about 50% over a decade. And there are ways we believe you could reduce those costs without actually dramatically affecting the system. And so we've published a, a number of reports over the years on HELP, the Higher Education Loan Program. Mm-hmm. And there are things such as you know, ending the, the write-off of help debt in deceased estates, which would actually make a significant difference to the long-term value of the help debt to government. Mm. So things like that, which wouldn't actually affect people very much in the short term, do make a big long-term difference. Mm. So could you give us then a quick rundown of the key differences in the policy platforms that our two major parties are going into this election campaign with? Well, the biggest difference is that the coalition would persist with small increases in total grants, but no demand-driven funding, Mm. whereas Labor is saying they'll bring back demand-driven funding by 2020, next year. Uh, And Labor would also have a major review of all post-secondary education, so both vocational and higher education together. Mm -hmm. And even though they haven't precisely said what they're trying to what policies are, will come out of that review, presumably in such a major review, there would be a wide range of changes coming. Mm, interesting. Thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. I look forward to seeing how this election unfolds and what the next government puts into place for higher education. Thank you. Thank- My next guest has insights to share in two important areas of Australia's policy priorities. Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director, Danielle Wood. Welcome, Danny. Thanks for having me. So let's talk budget first. It's been a headline topic recently with the election budget handed down just over a week before the election was called. And Danny, you spoke to us just last week on the specifics of that delivery. But more broadly, how does the budget policy on the whole score as it is now? Well, what we find is that um, in terms of the international comparisons, we came out of the global financial crisis in a relatively strong position. Um, Because we didn't take the economic hit in the same way as some of the comparison countries did, um, our budget, even though we went into a deficit of about 3% of GDP, it it was stronger than a lot of comparable nations and, and our net debt hasn't reached the same level. But what we see is some of those countries are actually now consolidating their fiscal position faster than we are. Um, so now, rather than sort of having one of the smallest deficits in the OECD, we're, we're, we're middle of the pack. And as we talked about um, on the podcast last week about, about the budget, um, yes, we're at the point now where we may well, and we probably will, reach a surplus next year. 
But there is a, a, a big question, I think, about how we're dealing with some of the longer term challenges around the ageing population, for example. Are we preparing enough for that through our fiscal policy settings? So those are the sort of issues that, that we're tapping into in the Orange Book. And have we done enough to kind of um, give a good picture of where we are in, in our budget situation? Well, I think there's a lot of um, gaps in terms of our budget reporting. And, and the chapter talks a lot about these sort of institutional questions. Um, so one example is we have fiscal targets under our chart of, of budget honesty. The government's required to set out a number of targets that it would like to achieve. That list is pretty long and unwieldy. A lot of them are very unclear, so it's difficult to actually say whether governments met the target. So, for example, the government has one target which says to achieve surpluses of 1% of GDP as soon as possible. Um, you know, are we getting there as soon as possible? Well, you know, arguably we could have got there faster if we chose to raise more revenue or cut spending. Um, so it's a difficult one to say whether the government's actually meeting it. Mm. So, and the other point with the fiscal targets is we don't actually formally report against progress um, in the budget papers. So if you go to a lot of the state government budget papers, they will say, here are our targets and here's a you know, discussion of whether or not we're meeting them. We don't do that in the federal budget. And I think you know, having a smaller, um, clearer set of targets preferably enshrined in legislation, so we can't just change them at, at the government's whim, um, and then clearly reported on, would be a, a way to increase discipline around the budget process. Mm. So outside of the fiscal targets, what are some of the other, other sort of focuses that an incoming government should have for future budget deliveries? Well, we talk about um, the intergenerational report, I think, is a really important part of the, the budget process's and because that's really about getting focusing on those longer term challenges. So the government releases an intergenerational report once every five years that um, highlights some of the challenges associated with an ageing population and the increase in spending and reduction in revenues and, and how it is, you know, what the budget position looks like if we don't do anything under business as usual. At the moment, that is only done at a Commonwealth level. So we see that for the Commonwealth government. Of course, a lot of the um, really important effects of ageing actually happen to state governments. Mm. So things like um, health spending in hospitals, um, all of that's at a state government level. That's not getting picked up in the intergenerational report. So we are encouraging the government to work with the states to actually produce a picture of the nation's finances that is comprehensive and think about these long-term challenges more holistically rather than just focusing on a single level of government. Mm. So, so what about forecasting? Is the, are there changes that need to be made going forward in terms of forecasting for budgets? Well, what we've seen, I think, in a, a lot of the past budgets, we've seen a lot of criticism around some of the economic forecasts, um, particularly around um, nominal GDP and wages. And in a lot of other countries, um, they have an independent institution prepare the, the macroeconomic forecasts. Um, so the PBO would be the you know, the most obvious choice to do that if we were to shift forecasting in Australia. I think it's a good idea, not necessarily because I think we will get wildly different numbers. Mm. Um, you know, if we look at wages forecasts, for example, we can see that the RBA, which is independent, a lot of the private sector forecasters have been similarly overshooting on the wages numbers in, in the same way Treasury has. Um, so it's not necessarily going to revolutionise the forecasting process, but what it does is just take away that question of whether 
it's political, whether politics mm. is influencing the numbers mm. um, by putting it with an independent body. So I think that would actually be worthwhile handing that to the PBO. And the other advantage, I think, of putting forecasting with with a body like the PBO is they're much more likely to be open about their assumptions. Um, they're much more likely to, um, you know, ask questions about, you know, whether there has been a structural change or whether this is still cyclical. Um, I think you just get a lot more openness um, mm. once it's with an independent body rather than sitting within government. Mm. Interesting. Let's move on to integrity reforms. Grattan has previously produced work on the crisis of trust facing Australian governments. What isn't working for Australian democracy? Australian democracy, that is a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, what, I mean, certainly what we found in the crisis of trust report is there's no simple answer to why it is trust in government is falling. But, you know, certainly one aspect is this question of Who's government working for? You know, are they making decisions in the national interest or are they acting for vested interests or self-interests? And I think people are quite cynical uh, about some of those things. And one of the reasons, or certainly it's not helped by the fact that a lot of the checks and balances we, we have around um, lobbying, uh, that we have around uh, ministerial decision makers are often quite weak. Mm. And... and um more specifically for the Commonwealth government, how does it fare when you compare it to state governments? It, in terms of the integrity reforms, it, it really fares very poorly. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we did the, orange, the state government orange book, um, we rated, we gave each state a, a, a grading of kind of A to E on, on these integrity things, so rules around political donations, rules around lobbying, um, rules around um, integrity commissions, etc. Mm. Um, and... If we put the Commonwealth government on that same scale, they would come out as an E. Um, So, you know, we have some of the state governments sitting on A's and B's. Um, The Commonwealth government is significantly lagging. Um, It has, first of all, no control whatsoever on the amount that anyone is able to donate to political parties and no controls on how much parties can spend. Mm. So the, the amount of private money into the system is not capped in any way. Um, transparency of the money is very poor. Um, so about 40% of money coming into our political parties, we know nothing about where mm. it comes from. Um, and that's because of things like very high thresholds for disclosing donations. We also don't have timely data on political donations. They're only released once every year. A lot mm. of the states have now moved to almost real-time disclosure, um, which goes to show that it can be done. It can, you know, there's there's no reason why we can't have more timely information mm. other than political will to get there. Um, and in terms of lobbying, um, we have almost no visibility over who our Commonwealth parliamentarians meet with, in contrast to somewhere like New South Wales or Queensland, where they publish ministerial diaries so we can see who it is mm. key decision makers are meeting with. Um, and we have little transparency over lobbying in general, I think it's fair to say. Mm. We have a lobby register but it's very narrow in its scope. It only applies to third-party lobbyists, that is, people that work for lobby firms that Mm. that lobby on behalf of their clients. So it doesn't pick up um, people working in-house, in businesses or unions. It doesn't pick up peak bodies like the Minerals Council. Um, So what that means is we have, you know, a large part of the sector of what you and I would consider lobbying that's not um, regulated by by any code. Mm. So I think there's, you know, a whole lot of, weaknesses in the current system Mm. and and state governments have really led the way on some of this stuff and shown us how things could be better. So it sounds like there are some pretty 
clear and simple steps forward. So so just how do we go about improving transparency and improving trust in governments in Australia? Well, I think you're right. It, I mean, it, it is clear and simple. Mm. And, you know, I think it also would be politically popular. So I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that neither of the major parties have really um, taken to this agenda with with any gusto. Mm. Um, so we do have both sides saying that they will introduce a, an integrity commission um, if they well the the current government has put a um, discussion paper in place and, and Labor's also said that it would introduce an integrity commission. Um, the key with that, of course, is making sure that it has enough resources and powers to do what the public expects that it would do. And I think there's some um, some big question marks around this. The, the current proposal, um, which I think we've talked about in another podcast in the past as well. Um, so, look, I think that's one area. I think, you know, you could very easily improve transparency around political donations. As I said, the states have already gone down that route. We would also like to see expenditure during um, polit- um, election campaigns capped. And the reason for doing that is that by limiting the amount of private money in the system, you essentially reduce the influence of any given donor over a political party. Um, Each donor becomes replaceable. And so you reduce that risk that money is giving people um, a higher degree of access and a higher degree of influence over decision making. Hmm. Um, And around lobbying, we would certainly like to see a much more comprehensive lobby register um, including the sort of groups that are, that are missing that I just mentioned. Um, one way to do that would be to link the lobbying register to the orange pass holders. So anyone that has a, a special access pass to Parliament House that gives them unescorted access to the corridors of power mm. um, would be covered by the, the lobby register. And we would very much like to see ministerial diaries published. Um, again, I think there's you know no reason why the Australian public shouldn't have visibility mm. over who our elected representatives are, are talking to. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time once again, Danny. We might even give you a reprieve next week. <laughs> special Easter reprieve. Yes, special Easter reprieve. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. <laughs> Huge thanks to all of our program directors for their time on today's podcast and their work on the Orange Book. Now, Brendan, tell me, if I wanted to go and have a look and find out for myself just how Australia rates against other countries that are comparable, how would I go about that? Well, the first thing you should do is actually go to our new Grattan blog that we've set up. um, That is another outlet for Grattan's research that's probably going to be a little uh, more informal and, quite frankly, even more wonky than Grattan's existing work. Um, and what we've done on that blog is we've, we've got a post up at the moment called which countries are most similar to Australia. Some answers might surprise you, which was done for, for the orange book. Mm. And, you know, we wanted to create a set of countries, uh, to compare Australia against that were wealthy, um, that, but also had similar, that were similar to Australia, Australia along a few dimensions. So, you know, how wealthy they were, how much income inequality there was, what was the poverty rate? How large is governors a share of GDP? So, you know, are we comparing ourselves to countries like France that have a high um, tax to GDP ratio? Or are we comparing ourselves to countries like uh, Switzerland or Singapore that have a low tax to GDP ratio? Mm. And then also things like the degree of um, market regulations, how much we intervene in the economy. And what's really interesting is when you actually do that list, uh, the countries we came out with, the 10, um, you know, they tend to be the same countries that come out regardless of how much you weight those various factors that we've talked about. So, 
you know, it doesn't matter whether you um, what, care more or less about inequality uh, versus per capita incomes versus the size of government versus how much we intervene in the economy. The countries that come out on the list are actually pretty similar. And that, so that list of countries is Canada, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, South Korea, Sweden, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Mm. And that, so it's a list of countries, some European, some Asian, New Zealand's our local neighbor, Canada is a similar federation to Australia. Mm. And that list is pretty similar regardless of what you do, um, how you weight these various metrics. And these are the countries that we really, we think we've got, you've got a lot to learn from. There's every country on this list has something that Australia can learn from in our politics and our policy over the course of the next election cycle. Mm. John, sum up for me, if you could, what do you see as the truly critical areas for reform for our incoming federal government? The things that will make the biggest difference where they really need to focus are around um, workforce participation and the things that we can do in the tax and welfare system um, that will help that, uh, both in terms of encouraging more second income earners to work more uh, and in terms of encouraging older people to work more. It's also what can we do in terms of um, increasing taxes that don't hurt the economy very much, uh, but um, so that we don't have to increase taxes that do hurt the, uh, the economy more. So things like capital gains tax discount, negative gearing, taxing uh, earnings in retirement more than we do at the moment, which is by and large zero. Uh, those things won't hurt the economy very much, and because they are lower, uh, at the moment, we have to effectively have higher income taxes, which we know do hurt the economy more. So that makes a big difference. We have got to make some progress on energy. It's been 15 years of drift and we're really starting to pay for it, not only in terms of emissions, and that's, of course, a very big issue, but also in terms of its cost and, and its reliability. Uh, we need to move on a universal dental care scheme. Uh, we need to fix a bunch of institutional things, particularly around selecting transport projects and around um, political donations and campaign spending and ministerial diaries and the like. Uh, and we need to look at some retirement incomes issues uh, where we look as though we're about to make some very big mistakes and mm. we need to clean up some very old mistakes around uh, defaulting people into superannuation funds which may not perform all that well. So those are the kind of big things. But mm. actually there's a much bigger thing overall, which is... Underneath this orange book is a demonstration that public policy doesn't make much of a difference year to year, but it makes an enormous difference in the long run. Mm. We have, as a country, benefited enormously uh, from you know, 119 years of, by and large, pretty good Commonwealth policymaking. Three steps forwards, one step back, that's in the nature of politics, but overall... Two steps forwards. Uh, and that has made a big difference to our lives in the long run. On the other hand, we have had uh, over well over a decade of policy drift, and we're starting to pay for that. And that's why uh, this is an election where we think that voters really need to think through who is most likely to bring in a government um, that will really make progress on these big problems for Australia, uh, because if we do make progress, that will improve our lives in the long run. And government is an enormous force for good if it is well run. Uh, and that's why we have elections. That's why they matter. Uh, on the other hand, I think what this book also does is lay out what that kind of program looks like. And in a funny way, it's all doable. 
You look at it and go, yes, of course, this will have to be argued for. Corners will get knocked off. Um, people will um, get cross with each other. That's kind of in the nature of politics and, and you know, it's way better than the alternatives. <laughs> but it will make a difference and that's why it matters and that's why uh, we are hoping that this book will be a contribution not only to the election campaign but to thinking about policy after the election mm. so that we can see uh, much more enlightened policy uh, for Australia uh, over the next term of government. Thank you, John. And thank you, Brendan, for your time and insights today. To download a copy of the new Commonwealth Orange book, head to our website, grattan.edu.au, and you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, reports and events by subscribing to our Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.